Hey everybody, what is going on? Welcome to The Lab. This is 538's NBA podcast for April 19th, 2018. I'm Neil Payne. I write about sports for 538. I will be your host today and I'm joined as usual by my co-podcasters, but in a rare treat, we've got here in studio with us 538's Chris Herring. Hey Chris. Hey man, what's Welcome going on? Welcome to the studio. Appreciate that. Uh, and also we have fellow 538 sports writer Kyle Wagner who is always in the studio. Usually. Usually, yeah, <laughs> usually. And, and always, uh, how, how are you feeling, Kyle, in terms of health? Are you, uh, back at 100% or? I'm as close as you're gonna get. I feel like this is one of the rare times where I'm not the one that's kinda under the weather. Yeah, there. it's actually me, uh, which, uh, the hosting, yes, uh, is a little difficult, but we're soldiering through it. And we're gonna continue our playoff discussion today. We'll be talking about a trio of series that are all tied up through two games. But first, guys, we're going to do some of the same stuff that we did in our earlier podcast uh, about the first round. We're going to fire off some quick takes on the series that we won't be discussing in depth today. So I'm just going to get right to it. Uh, first up, Houston versus Minnesota. Houston leads that one two to nothing. In fact, all these are, are two nothing series, so uh, won't be repeating that. Minnesota, of course, held an early lead once again in game two, but in the end, it was too much rockets. Guys, does Minnesota even win a single game in this series? Yeah, it's. I mean, I picked this to be a four-game series, but it's hard to see how it goes beyond that. Harden played poorly last night. Yeah, he only scored 12 points and shot two for 18 from the field. And this was still a blowout. And, I mean, to me what's becoming more interesting about it is the fact that Minnesota keeps getting mismatches and advantages that are preferential for Carl Anthony Towns, and they're not getting him the ball. And he's only taken nine shots each in the first two games, which is – crazy i mean regardless of matchup that you're not getting a player of that caliber who just scored 56 in a game a couple weeks ago more shots than he's getting yeah for me this is i think i picked a sweep i didn't actually write my shit down three two one <laughs> we can leave it as yeah. is all right all right leave it leave it leave it i didn't actually write I love my it. Down, whatever um all right but um, but for me, this is looking at, like, Gerald Green, uh, had 12 points in the second quarter, uh, to really, like, turn that game around. I had 21 for the game. He's their fifth leading scorer. He only played, like, 40-some games this season. And to me, this is, like, I compared them to the, the Warriors in 14-15 a few weeks ago, and this is the kind of thing where they come in waves. Like, oh, Harden's not having a great game. Like, all these other players are, like, not having, like, you know, the games that you hope. Oh, here's Gerald Green, who just a few seasons ago we were talking about as, like, an analytics darling down in Phoenix. And, oh, here he comes. Like, oh, uh, yeah, Gerald Green's got us for 21 and you know, game two, and we've got this one, too. Yeah. Okay, so Toronto and Washington, uh, I think we can maybe put to rest some of the questions we had about the Raptors' uh, bench usage in the postseason. Uh, the Toronto bench has scored 42 points in each of the first two games against the Wizards, and Toronto, of course, off to a 2 nothing lead. Yeah, no, I mean, they're going legitimately 11 deep, 12 deep, 10 and 11 minutes into the game. They've already kind of done that and emptied their bench. Um, what I loved in game two, the ball was just moving. I mean, and that, that's kind of been the, the story of their season is that they're not as ISO-heavy that they're not just kind of pulling the first shot that they see. And, you know, there were just several possessions there where uh, C.J. Miles just get the ball and just an immediate shot. He's always been good at that. I wrote that story earlier in the year about Clay Thompson and how quickly he gets the shots off, and, and C.J. Miles was right behind him. And so playing this sort of up-tempo style and just the ball whipping that way, and it almost looked like the Spurs for a while, um, I don't see how really Washington has any shot here unless – Something changes. Their chemistry looks horrible, by the way. For me, like I agree with all that. I think this is going to be a very short series. Like that eleven point uh, margin at the end of that game does not reflect no. what was going on. Um, but 
also Kyle Lowry has played well enough. Like he's been getting them into the offense. He's you know making good passes. He's also seven for nineteen from the floor and two for twelve overall for the series, which are numbers that look a lot like Kyle Lowry that we've seen in other playoffs. Like that's going to get them by against this Wizards team, probably like almost definitely. Uh, but against every other perimeter defense in this uh, in the playoffs in the East, like besides the Cavs, um, that's going to be a problem. Like if you're going against that Boston defense, the Sixers defense, yeah. or the Heat defense, I don't know how that's going to hold up. If like that's what he's doing and that's what he's done in past playoffs, so I mean it's just something to watch. Well, you know they're probably going to sweep. All right, Celtics Bucks. Uh, on this one, I kind of noted that uh, Milwaukee they lead the playoffs with 59 points in the paint per game, so they're doing a lot of work inside. Giannis is doing his thing off drives and everything, but they're shooting 39% on shots outside of 10 feet, and they're allowing 117.2 points per 100 possessions on defense. So it seems like this one uh, is is kind of the way we thought it would work out. But the Bucks are kind of playing almost like uh, to their form, but like the worst version of that form. I don't know. What do you think? Kyle. So for me, this is a thing where like the young players that we weren't sure were going to show up for uh, this team, like without Kyle, uh, Kyrie Irving, without Marcus Smart, uh, Jalen Brown's averaging 25 points for the series, like Terry Rozier making big shots like down the stretch. Not that Eric Bledsoe would know who he was, but... Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll get him a name tag or something, but... Uh, <laughs> um... <laughs> Sorry. Hello, my name is Terry. I just pictured that. It was really funny. I didn't mean to cut you off. <laughs> no, no, no. Yeah, put it on the front. But... But yeah, like these young players who all season haven't been scoring well while driving, uh, and they were going to need to do that against this Bucks team that just gives you a layup line all the way through, uh, they're delivering. And like we doubted the, the young players at the start of the season, we doubted them coming into the playoffs, and down the stretch with all the injuries, uh, they and, and so far they've delivered. Yeah, I mean, and on the flip side of that, the Bucks are just really, really disappointing. I mean, um, at one point, and I think I tweeted something like this, um, in a conversation I was having with someone, and I said, you know, this is a really unusual series because the lower seed, and not just lower seeded, but, you know, we're talking about a 2-7 here, which is, you know, at that point you start to think that the gap is just massive, but it, on paper it's massive, but, you know, um, when you actually break down the rosters and who's playing, it's not because Irving's not there, Hayward's not there. But when you really think about it, I'm sitting here thinking – you know, they might have three of the four best players in the series. Obviously, Horford is one of them somewhere, but Giannis is clearly the best player in the series. And then you've got Middleton. And then, you know, you can kind of you, you maybe throw Bledsoe in that mix. And then someone challenged me. They're like, no, Bledsoe, there's no way I would take Bledsoe over Brown or Tatum or someone like that. And I was like, really? And, and then you watch the series and you're like, there's no way I'd put Bledsoe mm-hmm. in the top 18 players in this series, really. And he's... I mean, he's had some several plays where he's just not trying, including one on a last-second shot. Um, and really, it, it's Giannis and it's Middleton out there, and then everybody else is just kind of really pedestrian in a series where you need Snell and you need Parker. Looks really, really rough. Um, you know, granted he's coming off the injury, but it's just it's disappointing to see. You know, there's no chance that Prunty comes back um, as an interim guy after this. I would think if they lose the series, even if they won it. Um, but I, I'm, I'm curious to see what fresh blood does for them on the, on the sideline and, you know, if they shake up anything about this roster. Okay, let's move on to the Warriors and the Spurs. And this one is overshadowed a bit by Wednesday's sad news about the passing of Greg Popovich's wife, Erin. Uh, news broke on Thursday morning that he will not be coaching the team in game three. Uh, but based on the way that the series has played out in the first two games, it doesn't seem like there was much that Pop could have done to kind of keep the team competitive either way, right? Right, guys. Yeah, I mean, I don't 
think I mean they they played a, a fantastic first half in game two. Um and if you can't really capitalize on that, minus Steph Curry, um and, and you know, assuming and we we know at this point Kawhi's not coming back, but um I mean I I think that they kinda gave their best shot there. Maybe stuff changes at home. Maybe, you know, there's an extra effort that comes, you know, that's born out of this tragedy, which I don't really like tying those sorts of things together. But, I mean, I, I don't see any way the series goes more than five, no matter what happens, uh, unless there's an injury to Durant or something like that. I just don't really see it. Yeah, I think it's a really strange thing that's written to the language of, you know, sports narrative that Brett Favre, Tiger Woods, Michael Jordan uh, can lose, like, someone really close to them. And, like, it's just um, kind of spectacle. Um, so, like, I mean, uh, no, the less of that, the better. Um, in this series, um, like, the only, th- like, thing that's, like, popping out is, uh, for once, you know, JaVale McGee is, uh, like, kind of a swing contributor. He's, yeah. like, stretching, stretching LaMarcus out. He's questionable for game three as of when we're taping. Um, but, uh, but, like, that is, like, the biggest wrinkle in this series. Like, it's gonna be a sweep. Okay, so let's close up with New Orleans and Portland. That one is really a, a stunner that the Pelicans are leading two to nothing. They went into the series as an underdog and all of a sudden after the first two games, our Carmelo model gives the Pelicans an 86% chance of advancing to the Western Conference semifinals. And uh, Chris, your guy, Drew Holiday, continued to dominate. He scored 33 points in game two. What, what does Portland have to do to have any chance to kind of come back and, and turn the tables, seeing as how they're going to be on the road for the next two games especially well well, really i think they need to stop playing like the raptors from the last few years i mean they a big part of it is just that they're they're so reliant on two guys and you know i've, I've complained about this before written about it before with mccullum and and lillard where if those two guys are off then you have to get a really good effort from everybody else which is possible but not everybody else is going to be in a great rhythm because they're not getting the ball as much because the offense is so dominated by those two. And, I mean, it's not just a matter of them being off. That's part of it. But part of it is also that Holiday is locking them down. Uh, the statistics, you look at them, how they're shooting when Holiday is involved in the play and guarding um, anybody in, in Portland's offense. He's held them to 6 of 24 shooting, and Lillard specifically through two games, 0 of 8 from the floor, with, I think, either two turnovers or four turnovers. But, I mean, he's been really, really good. And we've seen him come up with those sorts of plays, you know, in the last 40, 50 seconds of these games that are two- and three-point games. Holiday has been the best player in this series, and that's including Anthony Davis. He's been fantastic. So I'm showing my hand on, like, my enthusiasms. Like, I've always been fascinated with Rondo as a player, and he's having a really good series. Yeah. He had 17 assists in the first game. He went 16-9-10 and 10 in this game. Um, and like the way that they play Rondo kind of, um, shit, three, two, one. And the way that they play Rondo, uh, really affects or shows you the way they're playing the rest of the series. In game two, uh, we've talked about that defense a lot. They were coming out more. They were coming out on Davis and they were coming out on, uh, Rondo so that they could stay home on shooters and everything. And well, the Pelicans just made their shots. Uh, yeah. there was a lot of, there were a lot of shots like just being made over, you know, over like strong contests. And at that point, uh, like, there's not much you can do. Like, Rondo's going to be in transition and drop that magical bounce pass a couple times a game um, and give it to you like that. But uh, this is a game where they made adjustments where, like, they were just getting run over by by Davis and by Rondo uh, just with all that space. Game two, they made adjustments, and it just didn't matter. So uh, if that's going to happen, I'm not sure what they can do. Um, but if uh, – shit, three, two, one. But if uh, those adjustments uh, hold to form and, you know – the Pelicans stop making, you know, all the shots over the strong contests. Well, that might look a little different. 
All right, we'll leave it there uh, and keep an eye on that one as it goes back to New Orleans. Here, we're going to move on to the three things that stood out to us the most as every first-round series moves to Game 3 and beyond. We're going to start with Oklahoma City and Utah. This was the series that we highlighted before the playoffs as potentially being the best of the first round, and it's basically lived up to that billing so far. After Oklahoma City won Game 1, Utah tied the series up with a 102-95 road win on Wednesday night with Donovan Mitchell scoring 28 points, including 13 in the fourth quarter alone to help lead the Jazz to victory. Uh, guys, was this kind of a textbook Jazz style of win? I mean, the defense played much better in this game than they did in the first game. Mitchell was carrying the scoring load, and his teammates were pretty efficient, aside from Joe Ingles, who had kind of an off night. But that seems like the formula that Utah has used all season, and they seem pretty hard to beat when that formula actually works for them. I mean, that's a big part of it. Uh, one thing that really stood out to me just watching the game back this morning um, the second unit for them just has a huge advantage when they play Oklahoma City's bench um, because Favors is just a, a beast on the offensive glass. And the fact that Oklahoma City doesn't really have a traditional backup center, that they kind of use Jeremy Grant in there and, you know, kind of a, a piecemeal approach there behind a big guy like Steven Adams. Um, Favors was kind of having his way. And, and he even, you know, when he's playing the first unit, uh, they try to hard, hide Carmelo on favors and he, you know he was he hit a three at one point yesterday so he was a big boost to them but yeah I mean a, a big part of it honestly the defenses are so good in this series that when you have somebody that's having a big moment or a big game as far as shot making goes Paul George obviously in game one and last night you had Mitchell just kind of go nuts at the end of the game um, stuff is so even that you know when someone kind of has a breakout at one moment in the game like that I think it shifts the tide completely so to me this is also a textbook Thunder loss. So, like Chris mentioned, like th- these were like good defenses throughout the season. And like you look at the field goal percentages, and I was watching the game, I was like, oh yeah, there's you know, defensive whatever. Then I looked back and I looked at you know, oh, so what's the what are the shot qualities um, uh, game to game? Because you know, there's only so much you can look at from game to game. And the Thunder gave up like an abysmal shot quality on the thing. So I went back and I looked, and it's like, oh yeah, these these closeouts aren't quite the same closeouts. As whatever, and like the Thunder, uh, the Jazz just didn't hit their shots, but it's a thing where the Thunder defense wasn't as good. They weren't quite, uh, punished for it, but they also didn't punish the Jazz defense because the Jazz defense were just selling out on all the shooters. They were not respecting Carmelo at all. They no. didn't respect, uh, Paul George that much even, uh, after that, uh, strong game one, just being like, oh yeah, that's just one game. We're just gonna do what we do. And what we do is we're gonna swarm the hell out of Russ when he's coming around that pick and roll. You're gonna show him three bodies at least, often four. And Russ can still get to the rim. Russ can still make shots like that. He's made some, not many. Um, but that's what they were doing. They were just like throwing bodies and just not respecting the shooters. So, uh, like Chris said, like for, for game one, it's gonna come down to perimeter shooting a lot of times. And in game one, the Thunder had it. In game two, they didn't. I don't want to be like, that's the whole thing. But like, that's a lot of it. Yeah. And, and you have to also point out that as Mitchell was scoring 13 in the fourth quarter, uh, Westbrook, George and Anthony combined for only two points on 0 for 14 shooting from the field in the fourth quarter. And so that's another reason why, you know, you go out and you get this big three, four games exactly like they played last night. And if those guys have such a rough performance, it's almost impossible for a team like the Thunder to win. Yeah, no, I mean you can't you can't win. I mean unless your defense is just off the charts, you cannot win a game where uh, three guys that take up the sort of usage that they do shoot that poorly in a fourth quarter. But I mean it's interesting that uh, you have that on the one side, and with Mitchell, 
what I like about him so much, and no, I don't think it's going to be enough to get him rookie of the year. I don't think he necessarily should win it over Ben Simmons. Unfortunately, games like last night don't contribute to the voting also. Yeah, exactly. So that's part of it. But I mean, one thing that he has that is really special and unique about him is just how quickly, and, and there have been a couple stories out like this. I think Tim McMahon just wrote one for ESPN about how quickly and how perceptive he is, like kind of picking up something that he saw in the first or second quarter, kind of you know, downloading it to memory and then coming back a couple plays later or a quarter later and trying the same thing over again and doing it a little bit differently or noticing where he could have taken advantage of a defensive mistake. And he was kind of doing that yesterday where, you know, he saw how aggressively they were coming at him and he was rejecting the idea of just going in, you know, putting his head down and going through it. He would be patient to where the defense would retreat a little bit, thinking that he'd made a decision to pass the ball elsewhere, and then he'd go attack once the defense started to go back. And so he he's a special player, um, you know, and, and I think the the contribution they got from Rubio was a lot better too. He was oh, they especially were, shooting. They were daring him to shoot in the first game uh, where he was on pace to take almost 25 shots through the first half. Um, and this game, he, he punished them for it. You know, he had a couple shots to where they had to kind of come out and guard him, and that opens up stuff for everybody else. Cause normally in the past, that's someone you could just leave alone, and that's what they tried to do in game one. And I love that little spin move that Mitchell went to a couple of times yeah. into the lane, and then the little like floater, uh, scoop shot type thing. That could be like a signature for him. So Kyle, what do you think we should look for as this series shifts to Salt Lake City, uh, from each team? What kind of adjustments would you make if you were coaching each of these teams? And I'm not really sure what adjustments you can make in Oklahoma City beyond just like start making shots because they've been playing the same way all season. It's not like they have, you know, a bunch of other stuff, you know, in their bag. And where, they've been up and down all season too. Right. Where sometimes, you know, sometimes that offense is working. Sometimes, you know, uh, Carmelo, you know, slide over and, you know, make that shot. Sometimes he's not going to. I would say that this is going to be tough because they, what they really need is they need their role players to, you know, kind of, uh, play a little better. They, and that's not really what you expect from the role players going on the road. Uh, from the Jazz, I would say, like, I would expect them to continue, uh, just what they're doing. I don't think they need to make many adjustments where they're just selling out on that pick and roll. They're just cramming the lane, like, Gobert's drop back so far, and, uh, like, just make the Thunder beat you like that. You're going home and you have the best defense in the league. Why would you change that up? Yeah. I mean, w- one thing I find interesting, too, is you saw it a ton in, in the fourth quarter of the game, towards the end of the game. The Jazz are trying so hard to attack Carmelo. They're they're running pick and roll after pick and roll after pick and roll to try to force Carmelo to have to switch on a ball handler so that they can attack him. And Oklahoma City is trying so hard to keep him out of that action. Um, and so it'll be interesting. I mean, like play. This is exactly what I think of when I think about the playoffs. But uh, I really do kind of think Carmelo is going to kind of become the swing player in this series, both because of that and like his role on favors and offensive rebounding that the Jazz are getting, but also what Kyle said, if he can't make shots because he's going to get good shots because you play the numbers here, he's kind of the star that you, if, if you can call him that anymore, the star that you'd take your chances with sooner. Definitely not George after what he did in game one. And probably not Russ because Russ, if you let him do what he wants to do, he's going to get to the basket. And so you've got to take your chances with Carmelo. If he's able to get hot for two or three games, which we really haven't seen that much from him since the beginning of the season, if he's able to do that, they can still win the series. And I think they probably would win the series, but I would probably still hedge my bets with the Jazz right now. So that's the big thing. It's just, for me, it's the respect of, you know, having Carmelo out there 
and the Jazz just aren't respecting him right. at all. You look like he like they're selling out like he's Robertson out there. And so if they're going to treat him like Robertson and he's going to shoot like Robertson, um, like you've covered you covered Carmelo for years in New York. Uh, at some point, do you have to make that switch? And can you with like Carmelo in that locker room? Like so, Josh Houston, uh is if you look at his numbers and you look at just like when he shows up on the court and he's just banging around. Uh, like his young player, like is extremely good at defense. Maybe not Robertson levels, but like close. And also, if possible, even more incompetent on offense than Robertson. <laughs> uh, but like in a in a series like this, where like you're not getting like gravity out of that position anyway, where like you don't need good shooting, you just need like respect. Like you would prefer both, but uh, if you're not getting either, is that like something that they could even think about doing with Carmelo? I, you know, I, I think what the real answer with Carmelo is, or at least what they'd be hoping, that I, I don't think that Billy Donovan has my respect in one sense that he went to Carmelo during the season and said, we, we got to change your role. You're still a starter, but you've got to play more off the ball. We've got to cut down on the ISOs. You've got to be more of a spot up guy. What I've noticed Carmelo doing in the series, which still doesn't look good, he's putting the ball on the floor more. He's, he's trying to, Take advantage of the fact that if you're going to give him 24 feet of open space, that when he catches, he's going to try to drive. But and I, I mentioned this uh, during game one, and a Thunder fan got really angry with me for it. Uh, he's got like slippery hands; like he just isn't holding onto the ball. He's losing the ball when he tries to get to the basket. But I think that's kind of his mindset right now. And ideally, you know, if you're the Thunder and you're going to play him these minutes, which that's an open question as to whether they should. Maybe you do want him doing that. You're either hoping that he's more aggressive and, you know, getting points through getting to the line and, you know, making an occasional basket here. But he was blowing layups yesterday. I mean, he got to the basket at one point yesterday, an open layup where he basically bricked the layup. I'm like, what am I watching here? Because I did watch him for all those years. But you got to, that has to change. And I don't see Billy Donovan pulling him from the lineup or or cutting his minutes back significantly just because of his stature. Because I think if they do win the series, you're going to need him in the next series and you're going to want to rely on him, have his confidence in the next series too. Well, for what it's worth, our Carmelo model gives Utah a 59% chance of winning the series going into game three. So moving on, let's talk about the Cavs and the Pacers after uh, being obliterated in game one. Cleveland showed some resilience in game two, which we haven't always seen uh, out of this team during the season. They won 197 on the strength of a red-hot first quarter and a classic LeBron takeover. LeBron scored the first 16 points for the Cavs in the game uh, and in the first five minutes of the game. And according to our friends at ESPN Stats and Info, that's the most points any player has scored in the first five minutes of a playoff game in the last 20 years and that's also the most consecutive points any sco- a player has scored to start a game for his team in the last 20 years so it ended up being the fourth best playoff game of lebron's playoff career according to game score at basketballreference.com what stood out to you guys about how lebron and the Cavs changed to attack indiana in this one as opposed to how lackluster they played in game one that was my question for you did the Cavs uh, show resilience, or did LeBron? Show it was basically resilience? just LeBron decided <laughs> he was going to take over that game, and I think Teron Liu had made some quotes uh, even going into the game that he wanted LeBron to be more aggressive, and so people were kind of trying to draw that through line between you know that as a tactic for the team. I, mean, I don't know how much that is as a tactic of just say, hey, you're arguably the best player of all time, go take over and win a game for us at home, no less. If, and in some ways, that does kind of also uh, call into 
question Cleveland's chances over the rest of the series, oh, ab- too. Absolutely. So, I mean, like, my thing is, this makes me feel worse about the Cavs. Yep. You need LeBron to go in there, score 16 straight points. You need LeBron to score 46 overall. Kevin Love, whatever the hell he's doing, he's got, like, 5 for 16. Uh, like, no one else really uh, had a strong game. Like, Korver uh, came into the starting lineup and, you know, shot uh, shot well. Uh, you buried Jeff Green on the bench, kind of where he uh, probably should have been to start the series. <laughs> uh, and 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 that was that was the your big adjustment. But like your real big adjustment was LeBron's going to score almost fifty points, and we're going to win by like three. And they probably shouldn't have even done that. I mean, so first of all, Oladipo got a wide open three in the last forty five seconds of that game. That had it dropped, would have tied the score. At 100. Um, and, you know, Oladipo even said, like, I wouldn't change a thing about that. I, that's the shot we wanted. And it all came from a miscommunication as to how they're going to handle a screen and roll defensively. And so, and, and LeBron even said this, um, in his post game interview, which was kind of overshadowed by him being asked about Aaron Popovich. But he said, we were lucky because we totally botched that, that last defensive play where Oladipo got a wide open shot. Oladipo's torched them the whole series. And, if we're going to go there, Oladipo had two fouls within the first two minutes of this game, had three fouls within the first 14 minutes of this game, and as a result got benched for it to try to keep him out of foul trouble, which was probably a mistake. Yeah, he only, only ended up playing 28 minutes in the game. And they outscored the Cavs, I think, by like 14 in those minutes or something like that, and then were you know, out, out, outscored by whatever it was, 17 or... I, I'm not good enough at math. I think it was plus 11 with Oladipo on the court, and that means that it must have been minus 14 when right. he was off the court. And so here's the thing. If you're Nate McMillan, and, and I, I, I've kind of been blown away by how little you've heard his name with regards to Coach of the Year candidacy, but that's a massive mistake, and it might be kind of a season-altering mistake if they do go on to lose the series because that's a situation where there were two or three things that happened. First of all, Oladipo only averaged like two and a half fouls a game. So for him to have three in the first 12, 13, 14 minutes he plays is really unusual. He can, he's disciplined enough to be able to stay out of foul trouble at that point, probably. Uh, he finished the game, with, I think, with just those three fouls. So you could have played him more. With how important he is that team, they're 0-7 when he's not on the floor, when he doesn't play. So you know how important he is. You see the plus-minus of that game, you know how important he is. They couldn't stop him. And frankly, even he rested him at the beginning of the fourth quarter as if he'd been playing the whole game, even though he had a lot of rest before that. And he chose to sit him during the same stretch that LeBron sat. And so you could have made up ground there with LeBron on the bench to start the fourth quarter. And instead, they they waited or he waited McMillan. And so I, it's rough to watch that because that's a game they could have potentially had and at that point now we really get to see you know kind of desperation LeBron and Cleveland but I don't think Cleveland proved a damn thing yesterday I mean they to me I think the Pacers are just as good as they are if not better Um, and especially if you know I think that they're way more dependent on LeBron than the Pacers are on Oladipo because they actually held pretty firm with Oladipo off the floor um, in, in certain moments. They they wanted to try to close the gap a little bit more, but they've got decent players on that team that can hit a shot. Cleveland sometimes looks like they don't. Yeah, it goes back to, like, you can go back 13, 15 years to John Hollinger on ESPN just being like, 
your biggest advantage is you have good players and you can play the minutes. And so when you get a guy with two fouls, like, yeah, just keep playing him. Uh, because, you know, in less, uh, and like, yes, teams will target him and, you know, try to, you know, put a foul on him. But you just trust your players, especially in the playoffs where, like, the biggest advantage you have is you have better players than the other team. And if you can, you know, play them, you know, get them up into the 40s or at least the high 30s, like, that is what happens for, for every star and for, for Old Depot to, to finish that game, like, with 20, 28 minutes, like that's just that's crazy. That's absurd. Yeah, and that's been kind of a long-standing uh, stat head criticism of coaches that you know coaches in general. I think by trade are a little too conservative about a lot of things. But one of the ways it really manifests itself in basketball is in this reluctance to kind of play a guy with foul trouble because they're worried that he'll pick up more. And it's like you give away minutes uh, out of fear that you won't have the player uh, at the end of the game. You give away more minutes in the middle of the game and. And end up actually coming out behind anyway. Right. The so point in the second yeah. quarter is worth the same as a point in the first. Yeah, they're all yeah. worth the same number of points. So yeah, I, I agree with you guys that the Pacers have looked better for longer stretches of this series. In fact, much better than Cleveland. Uh, is is kind of the only uh, selling point here is that we have seen LeBron take over series and kind of will the Cavs to winning in the past. He hasn't always, in fact, seldom has had to do it in the first round. But we have seen him in say the finals and conference finals before put on this kind of performance and actually kind of take a team so maybe that does mean that the Cavs if they can get that vintage LeBron out of him for the rest of the series it is enough to beat Indiana maybe it also tells us very negative things about their chances of going much deeper into the playoffs though if they're needing to pull out their big gun uh, in that LeBron classic performance at this stage of the playoffs two games into the playoffs well, I mean, it's, it's, it's concerning. Uh, I, again, I think the Pacers are a lot better than they've been given credit for. I mean, they could have easily been, uh, you know, a, a three seed in this conference had it not been for Oladipo missing a little bit of time. If Oladipo had played an 82 game season like LeBron, they probably would have been. They lost every game with them on the bench, um, you know, injured. So that's, that's part of it. I mean, I, I don't know how much to project into the future rounds either because depending on who they play, I mean, they, they really should be okay for a while, um, you know, depending on who they get. If it's Toronto, yeah, that would be a difficult matchup for them. I still think mentally Toronto has this thing where LeBron is a really big obstacle for them to get past. And so I don't necessarily know what to make of that. Um, I will say this. If they had finished, um, if they were in Philly spot instead, I think they'd be in a really, really advantageous spot because I think that they would tend to play better. Boston's defense is better. But I think that they probably still – I think Boston would have a little bit of a complex there too, playing against LeBron. I could be totally wrong about that. I mean, there's some younger guys there. But I feel like LeBron would kind of lick his chops at that situation a little bit more. Um, these guys from Indiana are experienced. They really don't back down. Um, and they've got guys that, you know, no one's great at guarding LeBron. I think that's part of their problem. Bogdanovich is okay. Uh, he actually did a lot better yesterday. Uh, than Thad Young did, but I mean, it's yeah, just, he tore through their big men. Uh, I saw the stat where he scored 23 points on eight of 10 shooting when he was defended by either Young, Miles Turner, or Sabonis. Uh, and he'd only attempted two shots against the Pacers big in game one. So that was one of the big right. differences that kind of unlocked LeBron in game two. It's so funny. You see all these people that criticize Bogdanovich. They're like, Oh, who's this janitor guarding LeBron? And it's like, he's actually a pretty, he watched them. He's a pretty good defender and he does pretty well against LeBron. 
comparatively speaking. LeBron just torched everybody else, and that's you start to see Bogdanovich on him more later in the game. I was curious again, you know, thinking about Nate McMillan, why it took so long to get back to a matchup that worked for the Pacers that they did pretty well with in Game One. And I think it's really telling that in the Vegas odds we talked going into the playoffs that the Cavs were the favorites to win the East. They are not any longer. Toronto has moved ahead of them, and some of that is a function of Toronto getting out to a 2 nothing lead. But even though the Cavs still might be favored on paper to win this series, they are not the presumptive favorites in the East anymore, which is the first time you've been able to say that in a very long time. Okay, let's move on to our last series that we're going to talk about in depth, the Miami Heat and the Philadelphia 76ers. This one has been really interesting, I think, so far. Philly uh, crushed Miami by 27 at home in Game 1, but then uh, the Heat bounced back with a vintage Dwayne Wade performance to defeat the Sixers 113-103 to in Game 2, which snapped Philly's 17-game winning streak. Uh, 36-year-old Wade poured in 28 points, and now the series goes back to Miami, tied at one game apiece. Uh, was Monday's game a little bit of a reality check, do you think, of sorts for the Sixers after how well they played in Game 1 and sort of everything was clicking for them? What what changed in, in between the two games that led to uh, Miami? Miami winning. I kind of feel like a, a broken record, and I feel like maybe my analysis isn't going to seem the strongest. I mean, we we talked about it in the OKC series and with the Jazz, but I mean, the shot making in this series, I actually think might be the most telling thing too, just because, like I mentioned in the last one, Sharich, Redick, Bellinelli, Ilyasova. The four of them combined, none of these guys are guys that can create their own shot, and they combined for 90 points in game one. You knew that wasn't going to happen again. Yeah, and Philly shot 64% from three in game right. one. Also, they only shot 19% so in the game re- two. the regression to the mean was game two. Uh, you know, there's somewhere in between those two. And uh, I think you saw that happen in game two. So game three will be interesting. How do they bounce back from that? They did kind of get punched in the mouth. But at the same time, Wade went off in a way that he's unlikely to do again as well. I looked at, you want to talk about shot quality, just out of curiosity, I looked at what his expected shot value was for game two (laughs) versus what he actually got. I think the expected quality of his shots was something like 42% effective field goal percentage, and he shot like 64. So that's really, really unlikely for him to shoot that well. I think he made his first seven or eight shots. They were all fadeaways and crazy step backs like he's just not going to do that again yeah according to stats and info Wade was seven of eight on mid-range shots in game two uh including that big one that he hit over Simmons with 47 seconds left entering game two he was six of 23 on his previous mid-range shots uh in in his last seven games combined so it really was this sort of like out of nowhere just like take you back to what what do you want to say 2006 or so uh level of of Wade performance probably not going to happen again right Kyle yeah, I mean, I tend to believe him that it was just all Kevin Hart and the, <laughs> the, the, the tell your team what you did to them kind of thing with Harden or whatever. Um, but, but also, I mean, like it, it goes back the other way too, where I, I mean, we talked about the same thing. I'm a broken record on the same way, uh, that in game one, the Heat scored two points for like about five, <laughs> a stretch of like five yeah. minutes and like five points for like over the course of like half of that quarter. And so, so yeah, like that was unlikely to, to continue also. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I'm most curious just to see. Um, there did seem to be a couple things that worked with how they were defending Ben Simmons in Game Two. They uh, they definitely used James Johnson a lot more there. Um, kind of threw Justice Winslow at him a little bit more, and I mean, they they basically were even though Game One played out the way it did with those guys shooting as well as they did. 
they were pretty aggressive about trying to make sure that Simmons didn't really get shots. Um, and I think that that it's an interesting strategy, but it makes me wonder what's going to happen. Simmons is an unselfish enough player. He's not going to force his way to the basket if it's not there. And so if they do kind of huddle around him again, he's still going to pass to those shooters. And it could be something where we have an on-again, off-again situation where they're going to shoot poorly one game, shoot well the next game. Or they'll have a string of games where they shoot well, and that'll win them the series. Yeah, they were doing also things like they were uh, switching like much more readily when they they would try to run like use Redick to run his defender off. Yeah, and uh, they were also just meeting him a little farther out, and that that definitely is like making him think like he's not just like kind of just going right at the basket, uh, which you do when like he's being defended like Rondo in like two thousand and eight or whatever. Yeah, that's the thing that's changed in the NBA this year, maybe even before this year. You can't give guys. 20 feet to just get a running start at the basket. That's what guys are wanting to do. We see Oladipo and we see LeBron, these guys that will just dribble, you know, all the way back to half court and then just take a running start at the basket. Um, you do it with guys that are as athletic and strong as Ben Simmons are. They're going to find a way to score. Yeah. And, and the other thing that is sort of complicating about projecting this series going forward is the presence of Joel Embiid. He's still listed as doubtful for game three, but it might be a game time decision as to whether he'll play or not. And that'll change everything about the dynamic of this series. Right. Cause all of a sudden those plays where Ben Simmons doesn't get his running start, he's like all of a sudden backing down, like maybe a smaller defender doesn't quite know what to do. Uh, oh, you just throw it over the top to Embiid and like let him go do something or swing it around, swing it around, swing it around and just entry into Embiid or just, oh, pop it out to Embiid standing 28 feet from the basket. He might just, you know, throw it up and like it, it changes the entire complexion of that offense. I, I kind of want Embiid to miss the rest of the series for a couple of reasons. One, um, I'm interested to see whether or not they could win the series without him. Um, but two, I obviously want him to be as healthy as he can possibly be. And he's starting to get obviously very frustrated at having to sit out. Um, that came up. We saw some two. of his, yeah, social yeah, media comments. Uh, I mean, it, it, this team is really interesting for that reason, by the way, too. It's just like, I think there's a certain level of, I don't know if immaturity is the right word, but, you know, Simmons and kind of the back and forth with, with Mitchell over the rookie of the year thing. But, um, but I, there's a part of me, I feel like they learn different things and I feel like it, it, it bodes well for them if they can build the confidence that they can through doing well in this series without him and playing the style that they aren't going to be able to play once he's back because they really do push the pace and push the tempo. That's the big thing to watch in game three of that series is how much can they run on the road and how much are they going to be able to run because that's a game Miami really doesn't want to play. Yeah, and the Heat also kind of missed a big opportunity to win a matchup without Embiid in there uh, because Hassan Whiteside, who is their highest paid player and in some cases over the past several years has been their best player, uh, has done next to nothing in this series and has been kind of phased out of the rotation in, in a lot of ways. What's going on there? Um, I mean, he's been up and down all series. He was complaining about shots even before the playoffs started. Um, like, I don't know. It's a really weird series. Like, obviously, like, I'm not in that locker room or whatever, but like, Hassan has always been up and down like that. And he's, um, it's been like to listen to the Miami, like, reporters or whatever. Uh, they're like, this is a situation that is unique among players that have come through, like, the Heat organization in the Riley kind of era of like the like unique kind of frustrations with a guy just like being immature in their words. Yeah, I mean this this was the question that they had. People were asking like how much can you offer this guy in free agency? And the Heat kind of, you know, nullified that really quickly just by offering him basically, you know, as much as they could um right off the bat to not lose the guy. But 
you know, there were a lot of questions that people wanted to take a wait and see approach with him just because he is kind of viewed in some cases as a malcontent. Um, but he's not really good enough to get the ball as consistently as he'd like it. Um, Zach Lowe wrote a, a long piece. We we're actually in Miami at the same time to do separate stories, uh, but wrote a long piece about Miami and kind of illustrated in videos of, of him getting the ball kind of at the top of the key and just losing, you know, the way I saw Mark Carmelo just losing the ball. At least Melo was going to the basket. Whiteside was standing still, ball just slipping out of his hands. Or I'm trying to, you know, thinking about making a pass and kind of going almost like a check swing, going too far and doing it. So he's not a reliable enough player to get the ball. Um, I actually feel like he may have more purpose in this series once Embiid is there. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and maybe it would be good for him if Embiid was back because with the pace and the tempo that they're playing at, there's just really no place for him, particularly if he's not happy or if he's not getting the ball on offense right if Embiid comes back and they're playing like this and Hassan's playing like this then like they might average 60 points for the rest of the series <laughs> yeah um but uh like Hassan has traditionally like kind of like met the moment and you know when he's yeah. asked to do things like he's good at doing the things uh in that piece that Zach wrote uh it was like oh yeah so like at the time Andre Drummond was like the big story because he was you know passing at like a rate that we'd never seen Hassan apparently wanted to do the same thing, but Hassan has been a running joke among, you know, stat heads because, uh, for anyone who doesn't know, he has a profoundly low assist rate. He yeah, is, didn't we do a thing where we tried to track every time he had thrown a pass or something in a season and get like a gif of all of his passes and it was like doable? Yes, yes, somehow? yes, yes, yes. <laughs> like, like Kevin, like that season, I think Kevin Love had thrown more like full court, like, like outlet passes than he had thrown passes and it was it's just a thing where like it's it's built into the role you know that Hassan doesn't like to pass as much or like it isn't his inclination so you build that into the role of oh yeah we're not going to ask him to do all that much but then when he's asking you to ask him to do that a little it did it's got like kind of uh we'll say varied outcomes uh but like actually the variance isn't that high it's it's yeah. So, I mean, that's a great point, guys, though, that maybe Embiid coming back could spark some life into him and, and, uh, create at least like a competitive matchup later in the series. But yeah, I think that this one is really fascinating. I have no idea how it's going to turn out. I, Philly seems like they're better. Uh, but then again, you know, you look up and down Miami, they have plenty of talent and, and we still haven't learned that much about the series since before it started. For what it's worth, our, our projection model, our Carmelo model still gives Philly a 75% chance of winning the series though going into game three okay so that'll do it for this week's show we'll be talking to you again early next week to bring even more playoff analysis as usual our podcast producers are tony chow and katie ferguson our podcast commissioner is chad matlin keep sending us your questions and comments at podcasts at 538.com whatever your favorite podcasting app is we are there too whether it's the listen tab of the espn app or on apple Podcasts, where you can subscribe at itunes.com slash 538 Be sure to review and rate the show. It helps others discover the program. For Kyle and Chris, I'm Neil. Thanks for listening. Talk to you next time.